It is so awesome to have you with us today. We pretty much have a full house in this place. And uh, we're so glad that you're here. And I wanna just say a word to uh, those of you that are here, maybe for the first time, you're watching for the first time, maybe you just kind of found us, maybe uh, someone invited you, but I just pray that this service, this whole experience, that it, it feels real to you, authentic to you, that you experience the presence of God and wherever you are in your spiritual journey, that God will meet you right at that place. And I just want to pray for that today. Let's bow our heads. God, we're so thankful to be in this space. And Lord, we pray that you would meet us where we are. For some of us, we've been following you for a long time. For others, maybe this is new. Maybe for some of us, we're just trying to figure all this out and we just find ourselves here. And God, that's what's so awesome about you. You just meet us where we are and I pray that you would meet us right here today as we celebrate the, the wounded and resurrected Jesus, that we would experience your presence today. In the name of Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen. All right, you can have a seat. Welcome. We're so glad that you're with us today. Uh, so I wanted to say a couple things before uh, I launch into the message. One is that in two weeks, April 17th and 18th, we're going to have our baptism services, and uh, it's an amazing time uh, for folks who have, who have made a decision to follow Jesus and, and give public witness to that, which is what baptism is all about. And if you have made a decision to follow Jesus, not that you've arrived, not that you've got everything figured out, not that your life is all in order, but you've made the decision to follow Jesus and you haven't been baptized yet since you made that decision, I hope that you'll get signed up and be a part of that. You can go to our website and get signed up for that. And then the other thing I just want you to be aware of is that at the end of the service, we're gonna take communion together. And for those that are in the blue seats here, I think you were given a little packet of, of communion elements when you came in. And when we get to that point, I won't be giving kind of any instructions, but you can just take the top off that and access the bread and then the next level and access the cup. And if you're watching online, um, I would just encourage you maybe get the elements now, have them ready so that when we get to that point in the service that uh, we'll be good to go. All right. So let me give you a little context on the text that we're going to focus on today. There's so many different ways when we talk about like Easter and we're celebrating Easter, so many different ways that we can go. But here's, here's what I want to focus on today is that the context is this. Jesus has been crucified on the cross. He's been buried in the tomb, a borrowed tomb. He has risen on the third day as he said he would. And now there's all these rumors that are kind of floating around in Jerusalem about what has happened, like what has taken place. And there are rumors that that the Roman government has taken the body of Jesus to keep the disciples from getting the body of Jesus. And so they've taken it somewhere. There are rumors that the disciples have stolen the body of Jesus in order to kind of pretend like he was raised from the dead. And then there are rumors and people are saying, no, 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 he's alive. Like we've seen Jesus and Jesus is alive. And in the midst of all of those rumors, the disciples gather together in a room to kind of process everything that's going on. And while they're there, this happens. John 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said again to them, peace be with you. 
As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you out into the world. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told Thomas, they said, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, unless I put my finger where the nails were, unless I put my hand into his side where the wound there that was created by the spear that was thrust in his side, I will not believe it. Now, Thomas is definitely the most famous doubter in the Bible. I don't know if he's the greatest doubter in the Bible, but he's the most famous doubter in the Bible. Sometimes we call Thomas Doubting Thomas. It's like his first and last name. His first name is Doubting, his second name is Thomas. Sometimes we refer to someone who's struggling to accept something or struggling to believe something as a Doubting Thomas. But here's the thing about Thomas's story and his narrative is that it actually is very helpful to us because all of us deal with doubts. And a lot of people have doubts about the reality of the resurrection, right? They embrace the resurrection is this awesome metaphor, this metaphor that focuses on hope. And, and if there's anything we need in the world, especially right now, it's a little bit more messages of hope. It's a positive message. And so this is, yeah, I love this story. I love what it represents. It, it, it's a metaphor for hope, but really don't see it as a historical reality. And then there are those, and maybe you fall in this category, who believe in the resurrection, like you cognitively believe, yeah, Jesus, I really do believe Jesus rose from the grave. I really do believe this resurrection stuff. That's why I'm, that's why I'm here. That's why I came to Easter service. That's why I'm watching the service online. I really do believe this stuff. But then sometimes, even though we cognitively believe that, something happens, right? Something kind of turns our world upside down, right? Like we get cancer or you lose someone close to you or your marriage falls apart, or you find yourself in the middle of a worldwide pandemic that you never ever saw coming, or something else happens that turns your world upside down, and all of a sudden, the hope of the resurrection, even though cognitively you believe that it happened, but the hope of the resurrection doesn't feel so real. The hope of the resurrection doesn't feel so hopeful. The hope of the resurrection doesn't feel so comforting, like in that moment. And so when that happens, a sense of skepticism begins to creep in to our lives. And not just skepticism about the resurrection, just kind of skepticism about the gospel and skepticism about God and where is God in all of this and how could God allow this to happen and all of those kinds of things. Now, we don't know for sure why in this moment Thomas was so skeptical about Jesus' resurrection uh, it could have had to do with his personality. It could have had to do with his temperament. Uh, I'm pretty sure they didn't have the Enneagram back then, okay? Maybe, I don't know, it's been around for a while, but I'm pretty sure, like we can't look at Thomas and say, oh, this is his number. Like this is his Enneagram number, that he is a, he is a five wing four, or he's a five wing six. Although some of you will probably, after this service, seek me out and say, Rod, no, I've already kind of, I, I know what Thomas was, I already know, and five wing four, five wing four, are you kidding me? Like, what are you on? Like, no way is he a five wing four. So we don't know all of that. Like, we can't figure all of that. Here's what we do know about Thomas. We know that Thomas was definitely focused more on facts and hard evidence than on perception and instincts. 
that we know that this is not the kind of guy who's going to make decisions based on just a feeling that he has in his gut. And so until he sees some hard evidence that Jesus is alive, he's going to remain skeptical. Now, that may be true for some of you as well, right? And not just about the resurrection. That may be true about the gospel in general, about Jesus, about this whole thing of giving your life to Jesus, all of that, is that when it comes to putting your faith in Jesus, you're looking for, you're just looking for something more. You're looking for some more facts. You're looking for some more evidence. You're looking for some more proof that somehow this is real and I can really put my faith in this. And until then, you will remain skeptical. Or Thomas' skepticism may have been rooted in his unwillingness to get his hopes up again. You remember Thomas was one of the 12 disciples. Thomas loved Jesus and Thomas had left everything like all the disciples He had left everything to follow Jesus and he believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed that Jesus was gonna establish this amazing kingdom, this political reality that was gonna throw out the oppressive Roman government and, and was going to establish a different kind of kingdom. And then Jesus ends up on a cross. Then he watches as Jesus has nails driven into his hands and his feet and a spear stuck into his side. And there's this sense of like, it's all over. The dream is over. The hope is over. All of those hopes and dreams are crushed. And he is living in the midst of that kind of despair that grows out of that. And now everyone's talking about, oh, Jesus is alive again. Like Jesus has come back and Thomas, maybe it's just like, I can't go there. Like I can't risk getting my hopes up again only to have them crushed. Like that would destroy me. And so he remains skeptical, probably just to maybe just protect himself emotionally. And sometimes we do the same thing. Maybe, maybe you made a decision to follow Jesus at some point in your life and you had this sense of like how this was gonna go, what it was gonna look like. And, uh, and it just, it didn't go that way. And maybe, maybe you experienced some profound disappointments in that. Maybe there was a church that you were part of that let you down. Maybe there was a pastor that you put your trust in that let you down. Maybe there were some Christian friends who you thought would respond in certain ways to what's going on in your life and they didn't respond in those ways and you felt disappointed it kind of crushed your spirit and it's just like, I'm not gonna get my hopes up again. And so when someone starts talking about being raised to life in Christ or being able to start over, having your sins forgiven or being able to wipe the slate clean, being able to truly change, transform all of that, you're just skeptical, just primarily maybe to protect yourself. You just don't want to get your hopes up only to have them crushed again. So whatever the reason, we don't know for sure, but whatever the reason that Thomas was so skeptical, skeptical he maintains this position. I'm not gonna believe, I'm not gonna buy it. I'm not going to accept that Jesus is alive until I can put my hands and touch the wounds in his hands and the wound in his side. Until then, I will not believe. And then this is what happens next, verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And this time, Thomas is in the house. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, which probably freaked everybody out. 
and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into the wound in my side. Stop doubting, Thomas, and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have still believed. Now, let me just real quickly kind of mention three things I think that we learned from this encounter. One is I think Jesus is just saying, believe the witnesses. I think that's kind of the message that he's giving to Thomas. Just believe the witnesses. And I think it's the message he's giving to us. First, we're told that Jesus appears to the disciples and Thomas is not there. And then a week goes by and Jesus appears to the disciples again and Thomas is there that time. So what happens in the week between those two appearances of Jesus in that same room? What happens in those seven days? Well, the disciples who were there when Jesus appeared the first time, they go to Thomas and they say, he is risen. Jesus is alive. We've seen him with our own eyes. We have seen the risen Christ. And Thomas is not willing to believe what they say. And so when Jesus shows up the second time and Thomas finally believes that Jesus really is alive, Jesus says this to Thomas in verse 29 again, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. In other words, Jesus is saying to Thomas, Thomas, you should have believed the eyewitnesses. Like you had all these people telling you, people that saw the resurrected Christ telling you that they had seen the resurrected Christ. You should have believed the witnesses because everyone else who believes in me, everyone else other than the five or 600 people that saw the resurrected Christ, like in that moment, like everyone else through all of the centuries, including us, Jesus is talking about us. Jesus is saying everyone else is going to have to believe the eyewitnesses. Everyone else is gonna to have to put their faith in the resurrected Christ because of the eyewitnesses. So who are the eyewitnesses, right? Well, it's the gospels. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are the eyewitnesses to the account of Jesus' resurrection. They were written by individuals and shaped by a community who actually saw the risen Christ. In fact, biblical scholarship over the past few decades has kind of reinforced the idea that, that these were actually written earlier than what had kind of previously been thought. Uh, the, the scholarship that was around when I went to seminary back in the 1500s, like it was like, oh, well, maybe these are dated a little bit further. Now kind of the new biblical scholarship is like, no, no, these are much earlier in terms of when these were written. Like, these are eyewitness accounts. They are people who saw the resurrected Christ. They name other people who saw the resurrected Christ. Go and check them out. That's kind of the, the idea and how these are written. Like you go and check with the person and, and because they saw the resurrected Christ. And so if Christ hadn't been resurrected, like they could go to someone who was named as having seen Christ. Say, did you see the resurrected Christ? They go, no, that's fake news. That's not true. That did not happen. But that's not what took place. Like they went to those who were named. It's like, yes, he's alive. He's risen. He's risen. Now, if you're thinking, well, Believing the eyewitnesses is just not good enough 
for me. Like I'm not a believe the eyewitness kind of person. Like I need something more than that. Just remember that almost every bit of historical knowledge you have is based on the eyewitnesses. Like what percentage, think about it, what percentage of historical knowledge that you have and believe as true did you actually see with your own eyes? Like it is this teeny small percent of 1%, like most, even if you're 120 years old like me, most of the things that you believe happened historically, like you did not see those. You believe them because you believe the eyewitnesses. And if you're a kind of, I don't believe the eyewitnesses kind of person, that puts you in the same category as all the people who deny all kinds of widely accepted historical events because they didn't see it with their own eyes. And so it's got to be some kind of conspiracy because I didn't see it with my own eyes. So Jesus is saying to us, believe the eyewitnesses. Believe the eyewitnesses, believe the accounts who bear witness to who I am and what I did, what I did on the cross. The fact that I rose from the grave, like believe, believe the eyewitnesses. Second thing is this, don't give up on the doubters. One of the coolest parts of this story is when the other disciples tell Thomas that Jesus is alive and Thomas keeps saying, I gotta see the wounds, I gotta see the wounds, I gotta touch the wounds, I gotta touch the wounds, I gotta touch the wounds. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, who he's had no kind of encounter with, right? Jesus shows up the next week, and he's been saying, I gotta touch the wounds, I gotta touch the wounds, I gotta touch the wounds. Jesus shows up, and he says, Thomas, touch the wounds. And he goes, Thomas is like going, well, how did he know that that's what I've been like saying, is that I gotta touch the wounds. And that's when it all changes for Thomas, because in that moment, Thomas realizes that Jesus has like been there all along. Jesus has been listening to Thomas. Jesus knows what Thomas is thinking. He's, Jesus is profoundly aware of all the doubts that Thomas is going through in that moment. Thomas thought he was pursuing the risen Christ, and the reality was that the risen Christ was pursuing Thomas. And that's when things began to change for us as well. It's when we get to kind of points in our lives sometimes, even though maybe we haven't connected the dots earlier, and we look back and we start to realize, wow, God was there all along. I didn't even see it, but God was there all along. Like God was there when your parents got divorced and you felt all alone. God was there when you were doing some really, really unhealthy stuff and probably it should have destroyed you and it didn't. That God was there when you got cancer or you were dealing with some other physical thing. That God was there when you lost the one person in your life you said, I never will be able to live without. That God was there in all of your failures, all of your pain, all of your losses, all of your doubts. And God was there when you're doing the thing that all of us do at some point in our life. God was there when you were running from him. You know, um, all of us run from God. That, that's just reality. Sometimes I've run from God, you've run from God. Sometimes those seasons of running from God are, are you know, they're, they're short seasons. Sometimes they're long seasons. Sometimes we spend most of our life running from God. 
you, you can actually, maybe one of the sneakiest way to run from God, you can actually run from God and like be at church every weekend. You can be like religious and do all the things and kind of, you know, do all the stuff that seems like you're supposed to do, but in your heart, really, it's kind of masking the fact that you're, that you're running from God. And here's the thing about running from God that's so interesting is that, you know, sometimes we can run and run and run and run and run and, 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 and then we get to some point in our life where we go, you know what, um, this direction isn't really taking me um, where probably I need to go. Like this is a trajectory that's not gonna end up particularly well. Like this is not, like I'm not really flourishing <laughs> in, in going kind of this direction. And there's this sense that I need to stop running from God, but there's also this sense that, you have, that God is so far away now that you've distanced yourself from him that it's been so long and that to kind of make your way back to him, like it's just gonna be this long, arduous journey to try to find your way back to God. But then you get to this point where you turn around and all of a sudden, Jesus is like there. He's like standing there. And you realize in that moment, the same thing that Thomas realized in that moment, that, that you are not pursuing Jesus, that Jesus is pursuing you. That you are not chasing after Jesus, you are not running after Jesus, that Jesus has been running after you. That you're not trying to find Jesus, Jesus is finding you. Think about this, it's Thomas, the biggest doubter, the most famous doubter, it's Thomas who's the one who proclaims my Lord and my God. It's one of the clearest, boldest, most powerful professions of faith in scripture. The biggest doubter becomes the biggest believer. So don't give up on the big doubters in your life. Like God hasn't given up on them, so don't you dare give up on them. Don't give up on the skeptics. Don't give up on the folks who've been running from God so long, you say, well, they're never, ever, ever gonna run. Like God has not given up on them, so you don't dare give up on them, that God is still at work in their lives. God is still pursuing. There is still hope. And if you're one of the biggest doubters that you know, don't give up on yourself because God has not given up on you. God will never give up on you. God will keep pursuing you. God will keep coming after you. God will keep running towards you. It's annoying. It's annoying. It's like, he's like, okay, I'm done. I'm done with the God thing. I'm done with all of this. I've distanced myself. Just, God, just give up. And it's like, God's going, I'm not giving up. I am running after you. I'm gonna keep loving you. I'm gonna keep pursuing you. I'm gonna keep coming after you. And it's like, no, don't love me anymore. I don't want you to love me anymore. No, I'm gonna keep loving you. I'm gonna keep pursuing you. I'm gonna keep coming after you. The reason we're here today, the reason we're celebrating Easter, can I get a witness for this, is that God keeps coming after us. That God never gives up on us. So don't give up on the doubters. And then the last thing is this, God, give God your wounds. What's interesting in this passage is that after saying over and over again that he's not gonna believe that Jesus is alive until he touches the wounds in his hands and in his side, and Jesus shows up and he says, okay, Thomas, um, touch the wounds in my hand. Touch the wounds. 
in my side. And in that moment, there's no indication that Thomas actually does this. Now, this is what the whole story is about. The whole story is I'm not going to buy this until I can touch his wounds, until I can put my hand into his side. And then Jesus shows up and says, okay, put your hand in my side. Put your hand in the wounds you know, of my hands. And Thomas doesn't do that. Thomas just cries out in that moment, my Lord and my God. Why? Because Thomas thought that by touching the wounds, that it would prove to him that Jesus was alive. Like this was all about like proving that Jesus was alive. But then when Thomas sees the wounded and resurrected Jesus standing before him, it's no longer just about Jesus being alive. It's about Jesus loving him. It's about Jesus loving him so much that he's willing to be wounded for him. Jesus loving him so much that he's willing to give his life for him. It goes from this obsession, which is like, I gotta somehow prove that he's alive, to oh my God, my Lord and my God, look how much he loves me. This is not just the resurrected Christ, this is the wounded and resurrected Christ. Remember, this wasn't the first time that Thomas had seen these wounds. Thomas was there when the nails had been driven into Jesus' hands and into his feet. He was there when that sword was thrust into Jesus' side. And in that moment, when he saw those wounds being inflicted, he was convinced that not only were those wounds ruining Jesus' life, he was convinced those wounds were ruining his life. The disciples were convinced those wounds were ruining their life. Everything they had hoped for, everything they had dreamed, everything was going up. And now Jesus shows up. The wounded and resurrected Jesus shows up. And in essence, he says to Thomas, Thomas, these wounds that you thought were ruining your life, they saved your life. These wounds that you thought were ruining your life, they restored your life, they redeemed your life, they provided forgiveness to your life, they brought healing into your life. Like that's what these wounds represent. And the wounded and resurrected Jesus is saying the same thing to us. He's saying, look at my wounds, look at how much I love you. Look at what extent I will go to just to be in relationship with you. And if you put your faith in me, my wounds will not ruin you. My wounds will save you. They will restore you. They will redeem you. They will forgive you. They will heal you. And not only that, more than that, Jesus is saying, if you will give your wounds to me, I'll take the things that you thought had absolutely ruined your life. I'll take the things that you thought had absolutely destroyed your life and I will use those. I will redeem those. I will restore those. I will not waste a wound. That's Jesus. I will not waste a wound. Now John wraps this whole passage up by saying this, verse 30. Jesus did a bunch of other miracles and signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. 
But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's saying, I didn't just write this book to give you kind of a historical account so you knew a little bit more about Jesus. I wrote this book so that you would put your faith in Jesus. I wrote this book so that you would experience the life that only Jesus can bring. So that you could experience the forgiveness that sets you free from your past and gives you hope in the future. Like I wrote this for a purpose. I want you to, I want you to follow me. John's saying, I, I want you to follow Jesus. And folks, that's what we've been praying for for this Easter. It's awesome. We're back together. It's fantastic. But we've been praying, and I've been praying that, you know, when the service is over and people go out, that it's not just that you walk out and go, man, it's awesome. Easter service is so great. Music was incredible. Um, experience was just fantastic. The, the message was was average, but that's okay. And, and uh, our prayer has been that, that you would believe. And that if you already believe that your belief and your trust and your faith would be strengthened, and if you've never really put your trust in Jesus, that this would be the day. Easter 2021 would be the day. And so I just want to give you a chance to do that. And uh, so I'm going to invite you just out of courtesy to those around you, just to bow your heads, close your eyes. And, and as you kind of think about, you know, what's going on in your own life and where you really are, like with Jesus, not just about, you know, being religious and showing up and doing maybe the right things, but like really making him your, your Lord and your Savior. Really being able to say what Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And, and really being able to experience his forgiveness. Like really being able to have the, the slate wiped clean. The stuff that just kind of stays there and you know just... Only Jesus will be able to really forgive that, wipe the slate clean, and allow you to move on with real hope. And if you are just saying, yeah, that's what I want for my life. Like, I want, I want to follow Jesus. I want to experience his forgiveness, his grace in my life. Just be bold enough to slip up your hand. Just say, yeah, that's what I want this Easter. I just want to say yes to Jesus. That's awesome. Praise the Lord for that. Yeah, just be bold. Don't be worried about that. Just be bold and say, yeah, I want to experience Jesus' forgiveness. That's fantastic. That's great. I say yes to Jesus. Just raise your hand. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I want to experience Jesus' forgiveness. Wow. Angels in heaven are rejoicing today. If you're watching online, um, there's a chance to do that online as well. There's just a little kind of bar at the bottom that just says, I have decided. And if, if you 
want to experience God's forgiveness in your life and say yes to his grace and mercy, just click that. Just say, yeah, I've decided to accept Christ. I've decided to follow Jesus. And um, just click that and let us know that that's a decision that you're making. God, we are so thankful for this moment. And Lord, as we kind of end this part by taking communion together, we just are reminded that every time we take communion, that we are celebrating the wounded and the resurrected Jesus. That you tell us in Paul's epistles that every time we take communion that we are declaring the Lord's death until you come. It's a declaration that you're alive. But it's also the reminder of your woundedness. As we take the bread, as we take the cup, those are, those are symbols of your woundedness, of how much you were willing to give so that we might live and be in a relationship with you. And so, Lord, we pray in the sacredness of this moment as for some, they take communion for the first time where it really, really means something. I pray that you would just bathe this in your spirit. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that is given for you. In other words, this represents my woundedness. The extent that I was willing to go to so that you could experience life. Every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is the this is my blood. This is the blood that's been poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. And every time you take this, do this as a remembrance of what I've done for you, of how much I love you. Let's partake together. God, we give you thanks that through Christ you are the wounded and resurrected one. And we celebrate today not only your resurrection, we celebrate today your woundedness that is what makes your resurrection so powerful. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord.